Freelancers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Hello, Allison. How are you? I'm good. This week, we're joined by William Bernstein. He's the author of The Delusions of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups. Somehow, bro's going to make it about money. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, bro, today we're going to talk about yoga babble. It's a phrase coined by NYU marketing professor Scott Galloway. If you're not familiar with him, he's brash, he's divisive, and he's an entertaining guy. And yoga babble is no different. So Galloway defines yoga babble as if my yoga instructor went into investor relations or more simply corporate BS, particularly as outlined in a company's purpose, mission, or vision statement. Yoga babble is fluffy, blurry, audacious language that offers some vague overpromise that leaves you understanding even less about what the company actually does. So Galloway's team decided to take a qualitative look at the level of BS, as he describes it, in companies' S1s, an S1 being that big old document that a company files with the SEC when they want to go public. They then checked to see how that stock performed. Their theory being that yoga babble was a way to distract investors from what could perhaps be lackluster quantitative figures like ugly EBITDA, lousy revenue, or weak projections. Yoga babble being a verbal misdirection of synergies, out-of-the-box thinking, new paradigms, and changing the world. As Galloway writes, when firms are still searching for a viable business model, the temptation to go full yoga babble gets stronger. Now, before I go into some of their examples, let me point out that this is not rigorous research. It's incredibly subjective and just 100% fun. So also, they did this research back in 2018, 2019, back when things were so much more simple. All right. Of the companies they looked at, the company that scored the highest with 10, 9 out of 10 on the Yoga Babble Index was Snapchat with, we believe that reinventing the camera represents our greatest opportunity to improve the way that people live and communicate. And Peloton with, quote, on the most basic level, Peloton sells happiness. So the lowest on the BS uh, Yoga Babble Index with 1 out of 10, it included Zoom with, quote, to make video communications frictionless. And Tesla, yes, Tesla with their surprisingly straightforward S1 with, we design, manufacture, and sell high-performance fully electric vehicles and advanced electric vehicle powertrain components. Yep, you sure do, Tesla. So surprised by that one and how just down to earth it was. All right. And now here's where everything was so nice and tidy for the researchers because the companies that they rated low on the yoga babble, like Zoom, outperformed companies like Peloton, who scored high on the yoga babble. And then companies that ranked middle on the yoga ranked well in the middle on stock performance. But then, of course, the pandemic hit. And here's where things get interesting, because as you know, they did this research in our halcyon days of pre-COVID pandemonium, and they only looked at the notoriously volatile times immediately after the IPO. So let's start with Zoom, one that scored low on Yoga Babble with a mission to make video communications frictionless. Six months after the IPO, Zoom was up 122%, and now it's up 450% since its IPO compared to the NASDAQ 70-ish percent. Okay, okay, not bad. Middling Spotify, which came in at 5 out of 10 on the Yoga Babble index, was up 9% a year after their IPO. 
and is now up around 60%. That doesn't sound too bad, but it's not beating the NASDAQ composite, which is closer to 100% over the same time period. And finally, let's check in on the company whose mission is totally not vague at all, Sell Happiness Peloton. Laughably, Galloway looked at its returns only one day after their IPO. Again, this is not rigorous science they were conducting here when it was down 11%. Now it's up 330% from their IPO versus the S&P's 42%. Yoga babble is fun. We get to roll our eyes at companies that sound like they've drunk their own Kool-Aid. But as far as a leading indicator or predictive science, it's so qualitative, it's very hard to measure. And then things like global pandemics happen that turn the whole world topsy-turvy, where a company that just wants to make happiness is actually a very attractive proposition. So before we go, I wanted to see if you two can match a few mission statements from their S1. All right, you ready? First up. (laughs) We'll see what happens here. Our mission is to elevate the world's consciousness. We have built a worldwide platform that supports growth, shared experiences, and true success. Something related to cannabis. So I'm going to say Shopify. Mm, I'm going to say some sort of social media something. All right. Well, what if I tell you what their current mission is? It's to create environments where people and companies come together to do their best work. We work. Yeah. So back when they went public, they had that first fluffy statement of world elevating the world's consciousness. And now if you go to their site, though, it's decidedly more straightforward language of we create places where people work. That's because the CEO and his wife are no longer in charge. His wife was was some kind of new age something or other. All right. Next up, our mission is to make commerce better for everyone. And we believe we can help merchants of nearly all sizes and retail verticals realize their potential. Square. Shopify. It was Shopify. Nice work. Next up, (laughs) to harness technology and social impact to be the world's most loved insurance company. Lemonade. Lemonade. (laughs) Next up. Our mission is to create a world where you can belong anywhere and where people can live in a place instead of just traveling to it. Uh, Airbnb, maybe? Yeah, Airbnb. Yeah, Airbnb. All right. right. Next up, our mission is to make people's working lives simpler, more pleasant, and more productive. The Motley Fool. I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. (laughs) I, I don't know. That could be anywhere. It's slack. All right. And of course, then there's this final one. Making the world smarter, happier, and richer. Oh, well, that's a motley fool. Better get that right. We've got two thumbs in a mission statement. Well, we're not going going public anytime soon. So that's just whether it's yoga babble or not, it's ours. And hopefully we're living up to that every day. And that, bro, is what's up. Wayne Bernstein began his professional life as a neurologist, earning a good income that he figured he should invest. Unlike many doctors, or people in general for that matter, he took a scientific approach to the challenge, reading the classic texts in peer-reviewed studies, and eventually sharing what he learned online at efficientfrontier.com beginning in the mid-1990s. He eventually landed a book deal, 
publishing the Intelligent Asset Allocator in 2000, which he then followed up with by more than 10 additional books on investing in economic history. He eventually left medicine and formed Efficient Frontier Advisors, an investment advisory firm. And earlier this year, he published his most recent work, The Delusions of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups. Bill Bernstein, welcome to Mollyful Answers. Happy to be here, bro. So most of your books are about investing or the history of money in some form, uh, but this one's a bit different. Only about a third of it is related to finance. Um, a good bit of it is devoted, as, as one might expect, to psychology. Uh, but a large portion covers historical religious events. So what inspired you to write the book, and what do money and religion have in common? Well, they have our evolutionary past uh, in common. Uh, the reason why I wrote the book uh, is kind of a shaggy dog story. It goes back uh, to the early 1990s, almost 30 years ago, when I read uh, Charles Mackay's famous uh, Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, which is relatively familiar to people in finance uh, because it tells the story of the Dutch tulip mania uh, and also the uh, two great bubbles in the early 18th century in Paris and London. Uh, and when I first read the book, it, I, I thought, gosh, this is interesting, all these people going crazy over stocks or tulips or whatever. Uh, but it's not terribly relevant. I mean, the markets back then were relatively sedate. Uh, and then three or four years later, before my astonished eyes, I saw exactly the same things that Mackay was describing uh, playing out in the, the, the capital markets. Uh, especially with, with tech stocks, and it saved my bacon. Uh, and that's not at all unusual because Mackay's book has been saving investors' bacon for at least the past 100 years. Most famously, Bernard Baruch read the book in 19, just before the 1907 stock market uh, crash, and he recognized the signs and the symptoms. And he was so impressed by the book that he actually wrote uh, the foreword for a, uh, a, a, a later edition of the book. So I sort of filed that away. Uh, and then about five or six years ago, like everybody else in the world, I was absolutely astonished at the ability of the Islamic State to attract people from around the world to fight, to fight for its, its cause uh, in one of the worst places in the world. Uh, and a lot of the people came from prosperous Western countries. And I was, you know, wondered how did they, how did they manage that? And it turned out that they did it by deploying an end times narrative, a religious end times narrative that's almost identical uh, in many respects to the narrative believed by a lot of American evangelicals. It's a, uh, a belief system called uh, premillennial dispensationalism. Uh, and I thought, ah, okay, I've got to write the, the follow-on to Mackay's book because a lot of Mackay's book was also about religious uh, delusions and religious uh, manias as well. Yes, and, and, and you often in previous interviews have, have provided a bit of a disclaimer so that if people are... Uh, religiously sensitive or sensitive about their beliefs, particularly maybe evangelicals, uh, be prepared to maybe be somewhat uh, poked a little bit in their beliefs? 
Yeah, and, and by 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 all means, don't buy my book because you will be offend, you will be offended if you're an evangelical Christian. In fact, you might as well turn off the podcast right now. I should say though that you know most of the world's great religions get your discerning eye. I mean, you do talk about Zionism, you you do talk about uh, again the Islamic State and Osama bin Laden, a lot of people. So you're a equal access discerner or something like that. I would say. Yeah, occasionally, I mean, the last chapter is about Islam, and I've been accused by a few people of being an Islamophobe. And I reply and I say, well, yes, I think that fundamentalist uh, Islam is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a risk to humanity uh, and is a scourge on humanity. Uh, and then I say, but so is fundamentalist Judaism, and so is fundamentalist Christianity as well. And I leave it at that. Got it. Uh, one of the more interesting observations you make in the book is you basically say that humans are the apes that tell stories, imitate, and seek status. Um, so how has that helped us in the past, and why maybe is it not so good these days? Well, the easiest way to think about the most important thing you mentioned, which is our proclivity to imitate the people around us, uh, which is obviously what's happening in the financial markets now. So the question is, is why did we evolve that way? And the easiest way to think about it is to use this paradigm, uh, which is to think about the expansion of mankind into the new world across the Bering Strait at the end of the late Pleistocene, you know, 10, 15,000 years ago. And within several thousand years, uh, humankind spread from the high Arctic through the Great Plains, uh, and into South America and into the Amazon and all the way down to the tip of Tierra del Fuego. And in order to do that, we had to learn how to build kayaks uh, and to hunt bison on the Great Plains and to construct poison blowguns uh, for use in the Amazon. All of those things are impossible to do unless you've seen them done before. So we uh, find the one person who managed to figure out how to do it, or more accurately, the culture that managed to accomplish it over many generations. And then you imitate the people that are best at doing it. Uh, and that's where status comes in, uh, because you just don't learn, pick up and learn from anybody. You actually pick the people who are highest status in your society to learn from. So that's where the status part of it comes in. And then finally, our proclivity to uh, follow compelling narratives over facts uh, is simply because that's how the brain uh, works. When two you know, late Pleistocene hunters got together and decided to hunt big game, they didn't issue each other you know, mathematical coordinates. They said, you go right, I'll go left, and we'll spear the beast from both sides. They told a narrative. You uh, point out that it's this is all very important, right? For you, no one's born learning how to build a kayak, for example. You have to learn that from people who have already done it and passed on that knowledge. And part of that is that we have to be willing to believe other people. You quote a couple of psychologists, Boyd and Richardson, saying, to get the benefits of social learning, humans have to be credulous. We're kind of built to believe other people. Yeah, to use their almost precise words, we're getting blowguns uh, and and uh, kayaks on the cheap, but it has a price, which is we tend to imitate uh, people around us. And in the modern world, that's particularly costly, and nowhere is it more costly than in finance. 
you talk about the power of narrative, uh, and that's good in some ways. It's a, it's been a way that for generations people have passed along knowledge and history, um, but also people can be suckers for a good story. Um, how is that failing us these days? Well, the best example I can think of, I, I tried to leave Donald Trump out of the book. And when I did mention him, I wanted to mention him somewhat favorably. Uh, so I didn't you know, tick off the other half of my audience. Uh, and, and the story I tell is how in late 2015, during the early, uh, one of the early uh, Republican uh, debates, uh, primary debates, he was standing by as Ben Carson got asked about um, vaccination. And Ben Carson, who's a renowned neurosurgeon, gave the correct answer, which was uh, that it didn't cause autism, uh, that they were perfectly safe. And he was going to, you know, he had his kids uh, immunized for the usual childhood diseases. And Donald Trump interrupted him and said, you know, I have uh, an employee who had a daughter, a beautiful daughter, who got vaccinated and soon thereafter developed autism. I tell you, it's an epidemic that is sweeping the country, all right? Now, of course, that's an entirely fallacious, if, if not probably fabricated line of reasoning. Uh, but everybody who looked at that debate scored it in his favor. And it's just a perfect example of a good story trumping the facts. Yep. So, so to speak. So to speak, pun intended. Uh, all right. So, but despite the potential dangers of people for falling for a good story, you do tell a lot of good tales in your book uh, about some historical manias. So, I thought it'd be helpful if you briefly summarize a few of them. We'll we'll discuss two financial ones, one religious, uh, and perhaps you could share your takeaways. And let's start with the railroad bubbles in England in the first half of the 1800s. And you set it up for readers by painting a picture of what life was like back then. So, before the railroads or the iron roads, as some people called them. Nothing moved faster than the speed of a horse, right? It took weeks to transport goods from the north to the south and the other way around. In fact, it was sometimes cheaper to export goods, goods to other countries like Portugal by boat rather than sell them within the country. Uh, but then around 1800 came the invention of the steam-powered train. As you wrote, quote, the new rail technology transfixed the world. Pick up the story from there. Well, you can imagine uh, how revolutionary it was. Uh, land transport was so dangerous and so fast and, and so slow and so inconvenient that if you wanted to go, say, from London to Newcastle, you didn't go by land, you went by boat. Uh, if you wanted to go to Italy, you certainly didn't travel overland through Europe. You took a very dangerous uh uh, journey over the North Sea and uh, through the Pillars of Hercules into the Mediterranean. And if you were lucky, you got there uh, in one piece. And all of a sudden, people were able to travel at 30, 40, 50, 60 miles an hour and get to, you know, from London to Edinburgh uh, within one day. And it absolutely changed uh, the way uh, that we lived. If you think that the internet was revolutionary, the internet had nothing on the invention of the railroad. So it was this very uh, uh, compelling new technology that transfixed people. And of course, people wanted to invest in it. Uh, and so uh, people got very excited. Very, the, the analogous situation was the building of the fiber networks back 20 and 30 years ago. Uh, and it was very easy to sell a railroad IPO. And there was a man by the name of George Hudson uh, who uh, basically built a large portion of modern England's railroad network. And he was the Elon Musk of his 
era. He was a capitalist hero. Uh, everything he said got got quoted. He was held up to popular uh, acclaim. And of course, what always happens in that situation is that the first movers are generally not the ones who make the profits because what happens is competing products uh, come out uh, and the prices of the services fall, technology advances and makes the initial uh, technologies relatively obsolete. Uh, and, and so invariably these schemes fail. Uh, and that's exactly what happened to George Hudson. George Hudson eventually, eventually uh, went bankrupt and he took a lot of his shareholders with him. You mentioned that a lot of the uh, manias uh, are, are characterized by what you say are the four Ps, promoter, people, press, and politicians. Um, the promoter was Hudson. He also had the politician part because he eventually bought himself a seat in the uh, House of Commons. Tell us a little bit about the people and, and the press. And by people, do you mean basically the people who fall for these manias? Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, as, as, as someone who's a retired physician, I tend to think of the medical model of manias. So you start with the underlying pathophysiology, the physics and the chemistry uh, that underlie it. And, and for a mania, it's very simple. It's low interest rates. You always see low interest rates because, you know, just like today, you can't get anything on a safe security on a CD or a treasury. So you have to, you know, people are drawn to higher yielding and higher, supposedly higher returning uh, assets. Uh, and then you need an exciting new technology, okay, which, which we've already mentioned. The next thing you think about is what is the anatomy? Where in the society is it taking place? And the most compelling characters are the promoters. These tend to be very charismatic um, people. Uh, we live in a capitalist society where people are judged by their wealth. Uh, and their financial success. So they become the heroes of the country, at least until uh, they slip and fall, which almost invariably uh, happens for a number of reasons. And then they need suckers. They need people to buy into it. So these are the people who, you know, buy the railroad companies, uh, buy the internet stocks, buy the Bitcoin, uh, and and who get told the, the story. And then finally, of course, you've got the press and the politicians. The press writes breathless stories uh, about the new technologies uh, and, and the politicians uh, played a much more important role in the past, as you already explained about Hudson. Now securities laws prevent them from, from doing so. The, the, um, the uh, role that, that uh, politicians play in the modern era is just more facilitatory. They don't regulate. They tend to lay off the regulation. They don't regulate the markets as well as they should. And so the markets tend to go off the rails. There are a couple other aspects that made this uh, particularly um, harmful for the average person. One was uh, it was basically a form of leverage. When you, when you bought the security, you didn't pay it all up front. You paid a portion, and then you were subject to calls of capital down the road. And it turns out Hudson was doing something that was not illegal back then, at least until later, until the 18, later in the 1840s. And that was basically, he was paying dividends with new capital, what we would now call a Ponzi scheme, although this is a good 80 years before Charles Ponzi pulled his shenanigans uh, in Boston. Yeah, exactly. So it's just a form of leverage. If you can buy a security by only paying 10 or 15% down, which was the way things worked uh, both in London and in Paris uh, during the 1720 bubble, as well as during the, the railroad bubble, uh, then if the price of your, your stock falls by 10 or 15%, you are wiped out. Uh, that's 
been transmogrified in the modern era, of course, into margin, uh, which played an enormous role uh, during the 1929 crash. Back in the day, you could margin up to uh, 90% of your purchases. You just needed to put 10% down and you borrowed the rest from the bank or from the broker's uh, loan. Uh, and that's been cut down to uh, about 50% now, but it is now possible, of course, as we both know, to purchase cryptocurrencies on you know close to 99% leverage. Yeah. Uh, one final note about this episode before we move on to another one is you you mentioned Charles Mackay and his book that came out in 1841. So you would think he would have been right on top of this as a bubble. He was writing then. He was an editor. Um, but actually, he didn't recognize it as a bubble at the time, if at any point afterwards. Yeah. At the time, he was the editor of the Glasgow Argus, which was a big newspaper uh, in, in Scotland. And what he did was he published leaders uh, from other newspapers. And so he, he basically presented both sides of the arguments. There were people who were skeptical, but he, there were also enthusiasts. And he came down on the side of the enthusiasts. He said, yes, this may look like a bubble, but this is a revolutionary technology that can't be ignored, which is, of course, you know, comes, comes generations uh, before uh, the famous Templeton comment that the four most expensive words in the English language are, this time it's different. Yep. All right, so let's move on to a second episode here. Uh, and one of the principles you discuss in the book is bad is more compelling than good. And it brings us to what is now known as the great disappointment and a seemingly unassuming man from New York named William Miller. Tell us about him and how he convinced tens of thousands of people that the world was going to end in the mid-1800s. Well, Miller was an interesting guy who started out life as we would call him today an atheist or an agnostic. Back in the day, he was called a deist, uh, which is a slightly different but still rather skeptical belief system. And he undergoes a, uh, a transformative experience during the War of 1812, the Battle of Plattsburgh, which was this unbelievably bloody uh, battle uh, in which a small force of largely irregular American troops defeated a much larger force of battle-hardened British troops. And he thought that was, you know, the only way to explain it was if God was on his side. Uh, and so he began a detailed study of the Bible and came to the conclusion by and by that the world was going to end uh, sometime in 1843. And when it didn't end in 1843, it got pushed back to 1844. Uh, and this is, you know, the bad, the bad is stronger than good is, is, is just a perfect example uh, of how, what's happening now. Uh, which is why fake news travels around the world faster than than real news, because bad news, because fake news is generally more compelling and more lurid. Well, the most lurid story that you can concoct has to do with the world ending. That's what really gets people's attention. Uh, and that's what Miller was able to do. And what happens is, is that is that through a rather complex series of events, he and his followers eventually settled on the date of October 22nd, 1844. So, you know, you had probably several hundred people in the United States waiting on that day to ascend to heaven uh, in, in what we now call, the, what now we, we would call the rapture. And of course it didn't happen and it was the great disappointment. People gave away all their money uh, to, to their friends because they didn't think it was going to do them any good. Uh, their stories of, of, you know, 
pulpits uh, you know, being covered with, with, with currency uh, because people were convinced they weren't going to need it. And of course, these people got very depressed Now, it, when it didn't happen. Now, what's interesting is what happened to the sect uh, after its, its narrative got disconfirmed. And what happened is that uh, most of the um, uh, uh, followers fell away. A lot of them became today today's Seventh-day Adventists, which is a very peaceable uh, 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 vegetarian uh, sect. But a few of them doubled down, a few of the members of Miller's group doubled down and became quite fanatical. Uh, and of course, we saw almost exactly the same thing happen with QAnon, which got disconfirmed at the stroke of noon on January uh, 20th. And most people, most QAnon uh, followers realized they'd been had. But a very small number of them are doubling down and coming up with alternative narratives. And I think history tells us that this group of disappointed, doubling down uh, followers have the potential for being very dangerous. Yeah. It, it, when you talk about the Millerites, it's not just some obscure religious group that no longer has any impact on the future. You can draw a line from the Millerites all the way down to David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Yeah, because the Branch Davidians are a branch of the Davidians, which was itself a sect that branched off from the Seventh-day Adventists. So you go from Millerism to the Seventh-day Adventists to the Davidians, and then finally the Branch Davidians, uh, which gets taken over by this charismatic young man named Vernon Howell, who could spout the scripture, scripture like nobody nobody's business and absolutely mesmerize uh, people. And he was convinced that the world was going to end fairly quickly. Uh, and with the assistance of um, uh, federal law enforcement officials who had no idea what they were doing uh, and no idea what they were dealing with, led to a real tragedy. And the story doesn't even end there, because in 1993, uh, when the Branch Davidian complex goes up in flames at the hands of the FBI, uh, one of the observers, one of the witnesses, the eyewitnesses, uh, was a man by the name of Timothy McVeigh, who was giving out gun rights literature. And he vowed revenge, which he got exactly two years later to the day of the conflagration in Oklahoma City, killing even more people. Yes, very, very tragic. Um, one of the psychological principles that you brought up in this tale, and you sort of weave them throughout the book, is confirmation bias. Basically, what we tend to do as people is look for evidence that validates what we already believe in, but what we should be doing is looking for evidence that contradicts it. Yeah, and in fact, when you when you talk to a you know an experimental psychologist, what is what is confirmation bias? Uh, what they'll tell you is it's not so much seeking out consciously seeking out opinion uh, that agrees with your point of view, but it's actually much more aggressively and consciously suppressing alternative. Sources. So, you know, it's the it's the liberal who doesn't read National Review. It's the conservative who doesn't read the New York Times. All right. That's really what we're talking about. All right. Let's move on to uh, the third episode from your book that I think is worth highlighting. And it's more recent. Uh, and it's the dot com bubble and a company that you don't hear so much about these days. Uh, but in many ways, it was the epicenter of the boom and bust. And that company was a firm called Global Crossing. It's formed by Gary Winnick, a former bond salesman and protege of Michael Milken, the so-called junk bond king who you know served some time in prison. 
Uh, in your book, you explain how the dot-com boom and bust exemplified the four conditions of a bubble, as laid out by economist Hyman Minsky, and those four are technological and financial displacement, credit loosening, amnesia, and the abandonment of time-honored valuation principles. Yeah, those last two aren't Minsky's conscious criteria, but they're implicit uh, in, in his in his theory. His theory doesn't work unless you've got those two things. And I'm sure he realized that he just never he just never uh, uh, wrote about them in any in any great uh, detail. And the interesting thing about Global Crossing was it was the child of uh, um, uh, a bond salesman by the name of Gary Winnick. And the, the joke about Gary Winnick was that his main expertise in communications technology was the ability to make a cold call. Uh, but but Winnick was a real visionary because he saw the need uh, for an exponentially increased amount of submarine cable, uh, of submarine fiber, and he built it out, all right? And I, something on the order of at least 15 or 20 percent of the the cable, uh, submarine cable today is, is, is cable that Winnick, fiber that Winnick originally built out. So he was a real uh, benefactor of all of humanity, the ability to have, for all I know, that the call that we're uh, doing right now, very, li very likely is building, is being transmitted over a fiber that Winnick constructed. And unfortunately, he wasn't good to his investors. Uh, Global Crossing got bought out for pennies on the dollar. And what I like to say is that technology's investors are capitalism's philanthropists. They, they fund these marvelous technologies that benefit all of us uh, at great cost uh, to themselves. And this may also be true of, of Bitcoin in the long run as well. Uh, you know, the blockchain technology uh, is, you know, may, may be of real benefit to the financial uh, system. But I doubt that any of the people that are investing in cryptocurrency or even uh, in, in what they see as the blockchain infrastructure are going to benefit. They're probably going to have their heads handed to them simply because it's such a sexy technology uh, that's attracted way too much capital. So uh, at other points in your book, you point out that uh, another sign of a mania is that people who have a contrary opinion, who think like, you know what, maybe you all should calm down, they get attacked. I know you've expressed your opinion about Bitcoin, and I can just only imagine what emails you get from the Bitcoin supporters. Uh, I don't get any emails from from them. Uh, occasionally, what I see are, are is, is a lot of vituperation on on discussion boards, but that's that's fine. Um, you know, I mean, the only problem with that is I, I you know, I, my publisher won't know who to send the chocolates to. Uh, but but that brings up a point, which is, you know, I talked about the medical model of bubbles. So we talked about the pathophysiology, the Minsky criteria, uh, the anatomy, which is, you know, the four Ps, the, the promoters, the public, the politicians, and the press. Uh, but then there's, you know, the diagnostics. It's what you see at the bedside, the signs and symptoms at the bedside. And you see four things. The first thing you see is you see uh, the object of the speculation being everyday conversation. You can't get into an Uber taxi these days without talking to the driver uh, about you know, their, their, their cryptocurrency uh, uh, investments. The second thing is when people with good, solid jobs quit them to trade. All right. And all of a sudden become experts because they become investing experts, even though they may not know the difference between, you know, a debenture and their derriere. The third thing is you get not just disagreement, but you get genuine anger. 
Uh, and the reason for the genuine anger is very simple. People don't like being told they're not going to be able to get effortlessly rich. All right. Uh, and then the final thing you see are extreme predictions. So you see even some well-known mutual fund managers talking about Bitcoin making to a million, making it to a million dollars. Um, it's possible that 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 fund manager may be right. But if I had to bet one way or the other, I would um, uh, uh, bet against that gender undefined fund manager. So uh, just a couple more topics on the book, and then we'll move into just some basic investing questions. Uh, one topic you could cover in the book is the risk of, of basically someone, maybe someone who's psychopathic, getting access to a nuclear weapon. Uh, and in an interview you did on another podcast, uh, you said that you're even more concerned about that than global warming. So as a society, do you think we're not taking that risk seriously enough? Yeah, it's a classic effect of recency. We haven't had the bejabbers uh, scheduled, you know, scared out of us with a with a nuclear event uh, for over fifty years. Whereas, you know, global warming is staring everyone in the face these days. If I were faced with the choice, a Hobson's choice of taking out of my grandchildren's future either the certainty of global warming or the ten percent chance of a nuclear catastrophe or accident, which we've come within a hair's breadth of several times in the past half century, uh, I would I would I would pick taking nuclear um, uh, uh, holocaust, a 10% chance of a nuclear exchange off the table, which I think is an underestimate, by the way, uh, when you look at the history of the subject. Uh, and, and I would uh, rather take deal with the certainty of global warming. That's interesting. Warren Buffett uh, also believes this and had put money into some initiatives in that, but even he doesn't really talk about it as it much as much as it, he used to. And it does seem to be a, this this thing that has sort of faded into the past, even though it's obviously still a risk. Yeah, I, you know, I tried to get in touch before I the book was, book was published with Daniel Ellsberg, who of course is the expert on the on the subject, uh, and or one of the great experts on the subject. And I, I didn't get in contact with him until well after the book was was published, but I was gratified to find that he he agrees with my assessment. Interesting. And of, of course, scary. Uh, yeah. One final question related to the book, uh, and it's just sort of general. And that is, is there anything people can do to guard against falling for you know a delusion, a scam, BS or I mean because you do talk about sort of anatomy of the brain in the book are we just hardwired to believe this stuff and we're kind of collectively doomed well it's the, the important thing uh, is to at least think about the first two psychological proclivities we have which is our ability to imitate uh, and you know when everybody else when you're when everybody else believes uh, that they're going to get effortlessly rich, uh, or a lot of people believe they're going to be getting effortlessly rich, uh, and people are talking about it all the time with regards to a particular investment, that's a danger sign right there. Ask yourself, am I imitating those people? Am I taking my cues from those people? All right, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is to think about the Donald Trump primary debate story, which is, am I listening to data or am I listening to a narrative? All right. And in finance, the, you know, the math is, it can be very difficult. Doing a discounted cash flow computation is not the easiest thing in the world, and you may not have access to adequate data. So ask yourself, am I doing the proper quantitative analysis or am I listening to a story? All right. 
Uh, and that's that's the most important thing. And then the last thing I suppose to worry about, I would worry about is is the human proclivity towards overconfidence. Do I actually know less than I think I know? Uh, and that is particularly uh, a risk that the male of the species uh, is subject to. Uh, one of my female medical colleagues was fond of pointing out that testosterone does wonderful things uh, for muscle mass, but it's not so great for judgment. <laughs> I have to say, I'd probably agree with that one. Uh, okay, so let's move to the, the investing question. So given our discussion of manias and delusions and bubbles, where do you see that happening today? Obviously, you've mentioned Bitcoin. What about the stock market these days? Well, yeah, I mean, the obvious ones are, are cryptocurrencies and, of course, meme stocks uh, as, as well. Uh, you see a lot of uninformed players getting getting hip deep hip deep into those fields. Uh, the the question really is is you know that you're asking is do I worry about a mania in the stock market? And I think I have to say I do not see the degree of mania surrounding the overall uh, broad stock market that I saw in the late '90s. I mean, people really believed uh, back in the late '90s that all you had to do was invest in the Vanguard Index Trust 500, and you were going to make 12% a year and be fabulously rich by the time that you retired. I don't know too many people who believe that now. Uh, if I worry about anything uh, in the stock market, it's just current uh, valuations. The trailing PE is 40. Even if you normalize them up to you know, pre-pandemic levels, you're still looking at a PE of 30 or a or a, or a, or a Schiller PE, a CAPE of about 37. That's 99th percentile. Uh, I worry about that a great deal. The other thing that I worry about is 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 low interest rates. And I worry about that from two points of view. Number one is that the expected real return of bonds now is something like minus one or two percent. All right. And if you get a typical equity risk premium on top of that, you're looking at a real return on equities, if you're lucky of very lucky, of two or three percent over the long term. Now that's better than investing in bonds, but you combine that with normal market volatility and you've got a very rough ride uh, ahead. Now, I hesitate to say that over 10 years, over the next 10 years, anything can happen. You know, stock returns could be 15 or 20 percent over the next 10 years. They could be minus 10 percent annualized as well. Uh, you know, both of those fit the, the range of, of, of probability, the outer range of, of probability. But over 30 years, over the next 30 years, I am reasonably sure that they're going to be a lot lower than they were the past 30 years. Are some types looking more attractive than others, and specifically things like value stocks and international stocks, which have underperformed larger growth U.S. stocks? Uh, when you talk about valuation, they seem cheaper. Is it reasonable to expect that they could have slightly higher returns than maybe the overall market? Well, I certainly hope so, because that's the bet that I'm making. Um, I think that, that you know that the value spread, the spread in valuation between uh, value stocks and growth stocks is pretty near a historical high. It certainly was last October. Uh, and I think there's still a long way to go to narrow that, that spread. International stocks, particularly emerging market stocks, are also more reasonably priced uh, than U.S. stocks. Now, I, I caution that it's very dangerous to extrapolate that uh, into major portfolio decisions. The problem, of course, with people hearing this, we're like, okay, yes, U.S. stocks are overpriced, but what am I supposed to do? Invest in cash? Invest in bonds? Uh, if I'm a retiree, should I invest in a single premium income annuity? What are, what are the best options? Well, the, the best option in that regard is to be philosophical. 
uh, and to think to and, and to look at the long term, which is that if you've held a balanced portfolio over the past 10, 20, 30 years, you've done spectacularly well. Uh, and you have uh, a much larger portfolio, in a sense, than you deserve to, to have. Uh, and so the counterfactual is a world that has, you know, historical treasury returns, you know, bonds, treasury bond returns of 5%, bill returns of, of 3%, stock selling at an 18 or a 15 PE. Uh, if, if we had that world, you'd have a much smaller portfolio right now. So you have a choice between having a great big portfolio with a crappy expected return or a crappy yield, or between having a much smaller portfolio with a much bigger yield, okay? And which of those you prefer really depends upon who you are. If you're a geezer like me, you'd much rather have the great big portfolio with a small expected return. Uh, but if you're a younger uh, person, uh, you probably want the opposite. Uh, you probably want the small portfolio that's been hammered with a big expected return. So since we you uh, touched on your age, we won't talk about your age, but you are definitely of an age in which you, many people are retired. Do you consider yourself retired? Do you plan to retire? And, and do you think retirement is good for people? Well, I'm retired as, as much as I want to be. Uh, I think you need meaning in your life, all right? And different people derive different from different activities in their in their life. You know, you don't have to be uh, going and running a, still running a business uh, or writing, you know, uh, writing books. You do what gives you meaning. So if volunteering uh, for other people gives you meaning, if reading stories to your grandkids gives you meaning, uh, you know, giving your, 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 your children some respite uh, from childcare gives it meaning, then by all means, doing that. Um, I think the real problem comes uh, with people who save for retirement, uh, you know, especially people in the fire community who want to get out, who want to check out of the game at age 39, uh, and they really haven't thought carefully about what they're going to do for the next 50 years of their life. Got it. Because, you, you know, that, that existence does require meaning. You're going to get very disillusioned very quickly uh, if, you, if, you, uh, if, you, if you haven't thought about that, that aspect of it. So the things that give me meaning are, you know, uh, writing, writing books, writing a small, running a small business, uh, traveling as much as, as I can stand, uh, and reading stories to my uh, grandchildren over Zoom. Well, Bill, this has been fascinating. Uh, for people who want to learn more, of course, uh, they should go out and pick up a copy of your latest book, The Delusions of Crowds, Why People Go Mad in Groups. If they want to learn more about investing in asset allocation, which of your books would you recommend that they start with? Uh, the Investor's Manifesto. Uh, and if they're young and they really want to get going, uh, the, the book that I would recommend uh, is a smaller pamphlet I wrote called If You Can. Uh, and the major advantage of that particular publication is that it is free uh, and will get you started. Just put my name and If You Can uh, into a search engine, it'll pop right up. Excellent, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. As always, The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here or their yoga babble. Well, that's the show. It's edited babblingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.